Hey, it's Mark Kinsley. If you're in front of a computer, I want you to do me a favor. Go to nationwidegroup.org, and then there's a yellow bar up at the top that says click here. That's going to take you to something I want you to check out called the Back to Business Hub. And this is open to any retailer, not just Nationwide Marketing Group members, but retailers are reopening. States are rolling out their plans to relax social distancing guidelines, and we're trying to get back to business. This is a hub of information to help you navigate everything from health policy to merchandising, logistics, resources, training, marketing. And then if you have a question, there's a form you can fill out right then and there to get expert guidance from the folks at Nationwide who are staffing this and bringing resources together so you can make good decisions as you do reopen. That's up right now, the Back to Business Hub at nationwidegroup.org. Dos Marcos Podcast. It's the greatest mattress industry podcast on the planet. Wait, isn't this the only mattress industry podcast? He's Mark Kensley. I truly felt bad for you at the time. He's Mark Quinn. I think Bigfoot was actually very pleasant. Together, they are Dos Marcos. Well, it's something we all know. The retail landscape has changed. Life has changed. It seems like everything has changed and we're moving toward what we hope will be a new normal. Um, and that's why I'm incredibly excited today to have on the podcast, Doug Stevens. He's the founder and CEO of Retail Profit, and it's Stevens with a PH and Profit with a PH as well. I'm gonna get, let me give you Doug's credentials and a little bit about his background. So Doug is one of the world's foremost retail industry futurists, and we'll talk about what that means. His work has influenced international retailers like Walmart, Google, L'Oreal, BMW. Prior to founding his consultancy, Retail Profit, Doug spent 20 years in the retail industry holding senior international leadership roles. He's the author of two international best-selling books, Re-Engineering Retail, The Future of Selling in a Post-Digital World, and The Retail Revival, Reimagining Business for the New Age of Consumerism. And he's working on a new book right now, so Doug is a nationally syndicated retail columnist. He's on corporate and academic advisory boards. He's been in, featured in the New York Times, the BBC, TechCrunch, Wall Street Journal, and Fast Company. Doug, welcome to the show. What did we miss? <laughs> Not much. Thank you very much. And sorry for saddling you with such a long introduction, but thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I wanted people to understand a little bit about who you are, because I'm going to encourage people right now, grab your notebooks, get a pen handy because I want people to be able to arm themselves with ideas that can help them navigate the new world. But let's start, let's talk about navigating the new world because the book you're working on right now is called Resurrecting Retail. And you can give us kind of the sub headline there, but what do you mean? Are we saying to ourselves that retail is gonna need a resurrection? It's already down at the bottom. We're gonna to have to usher it back to the surface and get that phoenix to rise from the ashes. What's your take? That is, uh, that, that is a pretty uh, great way to caption it. Um, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because in 2017, I wrote an article for a publication called The Business of Fashion. And uh, the article was called To Save Retail, Let It Die. And it was sort of a commentary on the idea that, you know, as an industry, we have been sort of straddling the line between the industrial world of retail, the industrial history of retail, and this the promise of this new digital future. 
but that as an industry, we weren't really moving forward courageously toward that future. If anything, we were hanging on to the past. And, you know, a lot of the legacy retailers, the JC Pennies of the world, the Sears of the world, that were all embroiled in these slow motion liquidations. Um, it just occurred to me that, you know, maybe we need to burn the forest to the ground here in order to see, you know, what, what truly green shoots can rise from the ashes, as you said. And so, um, yeah, I believe that uh, ironically or, or coincidentally, that's exactly where we find ourselves today. Uh, you know, someone, I was talking with someone, uh, an executive at a major organization, a global beauty company this morning, and he said, my sense is that if this was uh, an, an hour long event, we're probably in sort of the first two and a half seconds of it. That, that that's that's how much has yet to play out. And I would agree with that. So yeah, I think there's gonna be, I, I think there's gonna be tremendous carnage, fallout, damage done to the industry. And it will really be a resurrection uh, and hopefully a portal to that new digital landscape that uh, we've been talking about for 20 years. So we are in this digital landscape and we've seen people at home or in their communities hunkered down for long enough now to create new habits. And I've talked to people about the idea that crisis, this pressure cooker we're in can fast track trends. So in relation to resurrecting retail and looking at the past work you've done as a futurist, and then really putting your fingers on the crystal ball and trying to find out where we go, What's the lay of the land? How do things start to shake out? What do you see happening here in the near-term future and then maybe five years out? Yeah, so, and that's a good way to put it. They are two different, two very, very different worlds. Um, so what do we see happening in the near term? Um, <clears throat> I think that right now we are still, we're still in the phase of this crisis where uh, we, we are still appreciating its magnitude. You know, I think when we when we all sort of started into this being pandemic novices, as we were, we sort of figured, okay, you know, shelter in place for a few, couple of weeks, it's kind of a, a nice, uh, you know, spring vacation, and uh, then, then we'll just sort of carry on. I think we're starting to understand that this is not something you simply carry on from, and that until there is a vaccine, and until that vaccine is widely available, distributed, uh, until most of the population is inoculated, there is no return to normal here. You're still going to have segments of the population, namely anyone over the age of 50 years old, that's going to be deathly afraid, I think, of, of being in public, being surrounded by a lot of people in environments that are being touched by a lot of people. Uh, you're also going to have a, a, a significant economic toll uh, in the short term. You know, people are already furloughed. They're laid off. They're waiting for government checks to arrive. They're concerned about their futures. They're hoping that they're going to be hired back. But the truth is, in all likelihood, not everybody is likely to be hired back. If, you know, companies are going to be hedging their bets against the future, I suspect that we'd be lucky if we see 80% hire backs. And unfortunately, the, the, the reality is that if only 80% of people that are laid off through this crisis go back to work, that's going to leave us with a persistent unemployment figure that's going to look like it did in 2009 in the heart of the financial crisis. That's the way we're going to go into the fall, potentially, and that's the lead up to the holiday shopping season. And once 
retailers start to sort of consume that and synthesize that reality, we're going to see holiday sales projections that are going to look awful uh, compared to anything that we've seen before. The markets are going to decrease further. That's going to take high net worth individuals out of this out of the equation and put them on the sidelines. And that's how we're going to begin 2021. So as we move closer to there being a virus, a viable uh, vaccine for this virus, rather, then we can expect to see the markets improve, confidence improve, uh, job numbers start to improve. But uh, we don't know when that is. This is an open-ended question right now as to when we're going to have a vaccine. So in the short term, there's no way to candy coat it. It, it is going to be a significant amount of pain uh, for both individuals and companies in the retail sector. Like you had mentioned, there's no return to normal. Um, that's an interesting thought. And, and I think um, it might be important for people listening to this to embrace the thought of that because it's like start to mourn it now. Going back to how things used to be, um, it, it's probably not going to be like that. Can you think of anything like in terms of not going back to normal that might not shift back of course the financials uh like all the people may not be hired back right get that part but any other type of cultural things uh you see happening that may not return uh back to how they used to be maybe part of the shopping experience any of that can you um Yeah, sure. So, and permeate change in the short term and underestimate the change in the long term. I, I think that applies here as well. You know, we hear conversations right now about the short term behavior th that consumers are exhibiting. You know, will there be a new and enhanced willingness to buy things online? Will more of our consumption go into digital channels as opposed to physical stores? Will stores divest of their physical assets and move their money into digital? Some of these things are, are right at our doorstep right now, and they're fairly obvious, and we can extract that yeah there's probably going to be a change there but what I'm watching and what I'm really trying to understand for the sake of this book is but what about the deeper stuff you know when you look out at a body of water oftentimes your eyes are, are sort of attracted to the waves you know the action of the waves but the really deep currents the currents that kill you are the ones that are under the surface you know it's the riptides and, and the uh, undertoes and and so the question that I'm trying to answer is but what are the deeper impacts on society you know Twitter announced this week for example that it, it is basically not requiring its uh, its workers to come back to an office ever it's basically said this is the threshold there's no need for you you know you're, you're perfectly productive at home you seem to be happy we're getting things done so stay there if that works for you. If it doesn't, then by all means come into the office. But if you think about that one change, that one societal change, if companies begin to rethink this whole concept around people commuting, working off the thing, if, if that falls into question, we have to ask the question, how much retail is built around that? That whole concept, you know, how much of our retail construct that we see around us today is a product of the industrial era? And is it still relevant if 30 or 40 percent of people stop commuting and going to work in office towers uh, or, you know, 
half the students at Boston College decide to take courses online. What does that do to the complexion of a city? So yeah, I think that there are really gonna be deep societal changes along work, the concept of work and where and how we do it, how we educate ourselves, how we transport ourselves from one place to another, and ultimately how we communicate. And all of those things could dramatically shift the, the retail landscape. Talk about that a little bit more. So it's, it is like when you just look out from the street at a giant office building, that's where people go to do work. Down below on the street, there are restaurants, there are retail shops, and the reason they're there is you go to where the people are. Right. Where, where will the people, like what are some of those other undercurrents on where the people will be going, how they'll be spending their time, and how that dovetails with any opportunity at retail? Or is it, you know, from a macro standpoint, a complete shift in how we, how we do retail, how it gets brought to the people? Yeah, I mean, I think, it's a, I think it is more of a, potentially anyway, a complete, a complete shift. Um, because, you know, you know, I keep talking about sort of this, this notion of there being an, this industrial era that we are sort of trying to climb out of. But when you think about it, really prior to sort of the mid 1800s, life as we know it today didn't exist. Most people lived outside of major cities. Most people worked where they lived in the village or the town or the, you know, the small city where they lived. Many people worked for themselves and they worked alongside their family members. Kids didn't go off to school. Many of them were educated at home. Um, So, you know, our current our current model for how society works is not necessarily something that has existed from the beginning of time. It's, it's a relatively new concept. And yet so much of what we see around us today is built around that premise, you know, but we institutionalized life, uh, work became institutionalized, education became institutionalized, medicine became institutionalized. And, if anything, uh, retail is a reflection of all of that institutionalization and industrialization. But once we move into the digital world, the store is everywhere. The store is wherever the customer wants it to be, whenever the customer wants it to be there. And the mattress industry, it perhaps, you know, uh, uh, almost in particular, has been an industry that has kind of resisted that notion that, mm, yeah, okay, we can go so far with that, but the consumer still needs to come in and check out the firmness of the mattress and understand the coils. And well, not necessarily, you know, the world we're moving into, I believe is a world where if you can't make your product available to the customer with confidence in their living room, you're invisible. You're going to be absolutely invisible to them. What does that look like for the mattress industry in your opinion? Of course, we've seen compressed roll pack mattresses take huge market share for the industry. Consumers not enjoying the experience of going into shop for a mattress. We just had uh, another author, John Spolstra. Um, He used to be the president of the Nets, GM of the Portland Trailblazers. And he's an author of this book called Marketing Outrageously. And he told us his story about not wanting to go in a shop for a mattress in his recent purchase online. Well, we're seeing that happen across the board. Is, is that the trend that you see in terms of making it available in somebody's living room? How do you see that kind of playing out for the people that want to touch and feel? Sure. 
Um, so look, I mean, we, yes, we've, we've seen the way uh, the bed in the box uh, category has, has taken off. And, and part of the secret, of course, was, was simplicity. It was, it was taking the complexity out of the, the choice, you know. Um, sure, some of it was about making it available online. Some of it was about providing a 100-day guarantee and being able to, you know, ship it back if you're dissatisfied. But fundamentally, what they had, what they had also done was that while the mattress industry was increasing complexity of choice, adding more options to choose from, adding more ways to upsell the package, what these companies were doing was simplifying it, saying, look, we don't have a million different firmnesses. We don't have, you know, pillow top versus normal top. And, you know, it's just, here it is, straight up. And, and we've tested it. It's a great mattress. You'll be delighted. So they changed not just the channel, through which that product was sold, but they changed the fundamental way it was sold. They, they took a lot of the, the uh, head scratching out of that process, made it more enjoyable. So that's, that's a big part of that. But I mean, moving forward, if we, you know, you, you think about what's the fast, one of the fastest growing startups in the US prior to COVID anyway, everything is sort of now prior to COVID. One of the fastest growing startups is Carvana. And how is Carvana making money? They're making money by selling used cars online to people who never sit in those cars before they actually pay for them. And then that car is delivered to their doorstep. They try it for seven days. If they don't like it, they can send it back. Um, and they, they're, you know, one of the fastest growing startups and, and outperforming virtually everyone else in the automobile industry. Well, if I can buy a car online, why can't I buy a bed? Why can't that just be super easy? Why can't I be, you know, in a position to, to see what that's going to look like in my space using augmented reality or virtual reality or CGI? Uh, why can't we take the complexity out of it? Why can't we deliver that thing in a few hours and have it set up? I mean, this is just a lot harder than it needs to be. And anything in this digital future that's too onerous, again, is just going to be marked invisible by consumers. They're not going to go there. So I, my, my understanding is that Carvana, and I did a quick search, is, has yet to be profitable. Do you know that to be different? Doug, do you know if they have that, that, turned the corner? Yeah. Uh, I, I, can, I cannot give you a definitive answer on that. I, I know that their growth is staggering. Uh, right. But of course, you know, growth is, is oftentimes the leading indicator for, for startups. I don't know specifically about their profitability. Yeah, and so I bring that up because in our industry, you made a great point earlier in that acquisition costs have been growing so fast. And in the bed in the box category, there's a couple of things preventing these disruptors. And the way they've approached the market is, was brilliant. We were talking to some people about it um, earlier today. Um, and the big factor is the inside of Amazon and he said even in Amazon the word mattress is the most expensive word you can buy and partially because it's big ticket high margin therefore there's plenty there to bid that stuff up but that's still true and I think it's true outside of the Amazon um, corridor but then the second part is returns so um, with a mattress or with a car building in the return percent into your model it's tough because for people selling beds online return rates are really high. And with a mattress, you can't just shove that thing back in a box and give it to the UPS guy. You have to 
literally give it to them to donate to a charity or things like that. So um, I'm saying that to ask the question, um, have you seen people figure that out in other categories? So return percentages and how to mitigate the problem there um, and um, some of those other things um, like the acquisition costs, like how are other people getting over the hump and, and putting their business model into profitability? Yeah, I mean, reducing reducing percentage of returns, absolutely, vitally important. And again, another reason to really try and shave complexity out of the process for consumers. I mean, obviously, the more... Uh, the, the more uh, a consumer feels that they concretely understand what it is that they're going to be getting, uh, the more media perhaps that you make available to them to enhance that understanding of exactly what is this going to be like, what's the fabric like, what's the comfort level like, what's the construction like, the more thoroughly we can reinvent the process to give the consumer that assurance online. It, 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 by definition, you're, you're going to be reducing your... your um, uh, uh, returns exponentially. The problem that that I find, and and I'll give you an example. Um, you know, right now, uh, a lot of uh, grocers, a lot of grocery retailers are having to very very quickly put their their online game together. And part of the problem with that is, you know, we're hearing figures like in the grocery category, for example, there's been a 600% increase in online grocery ordering. The problem is that 600% increase in the grocery category is still a very, very small percentage of groceries, right? I mean, on a good day, that might, that might represent something like 15% of grocery is now being transacted online, where before it was maybe 2 or 3%. But within that, even with that, even with that kind of an increase, what grocers are experiencing is difficulty. They're, they're experiencing a lot of uh, inefficiency in getting those orders out the door. They're experiencing really high cost in getting those to the door because they don't have a really well-put-together plan, like maybe a Walmart does because Walmart's been working at that for years. So part of the thing about profitability is that when you start doing something, you're inherently bad at it. And so your profitability out of the gate is not going to look good. And that's where a lot of companies just pull back and they say, okay, well, this is a failed experiment because we're not making money. Over the fullness of time, as you develop those systems, develop platforms, protocols, you get better and better at it. You're your coverage becomes better, your logistics systems become better, you become more profitable with those sales. But at the end of the day, it's kind of a zero-sum game. If you're not available in the customer's home when they need you, you're not making it easy enough to buy, they'll go somewhere else because there will be someone there. And, and these days, the answer seems to be Amazon for virtually everything. Talk about, so there's the big one, Amazon. Let's talk about independent retail. So you have mattress stores across the United States reopening their doors. Some of them have been able to stay open under these appointment models. Uh, from what we understand, the appointment model has increased close rates dramatically because if you make an appointment to do something, you're going to get it done. So mm -hmm. if you're an independent retailer right now with one store or maybe a handful of stores and you're trying to reopen, this is your business. You've been doing it for 28 years. And I'm listening to Doug Stevens talk about how much is moving online and needing to be available in people's homes. How do I marry up 
what I want to continue doing with where things are likely heading? How would you be thinking about that if it was your business? Um, you know, um, a, a few things, uh, I, th I think, <clears throat> in terms of advice that I would give. In the short term, the, the mission is to keep the business alive. I mean, let's, let's be honest. The short-term mission for every retailer, particularly independent retailers that may not have you know, months and months of, of operating expenses sitting in a bank, uh, is to keep the business alive. And so the questions around, you know, do, do, where do I sell? Which platforms do I sell on? Is there an opportunity for me to become an Amazon merchant? You know, all of these questions in the short term uh, and these potential strategies, the only thing you have to consider in the short term is, do these marry up to my brand positioning? You know, is this congruent with my brand positioning or am I likely to make some moves here that even though they're, you know, uh, uh, expedient in the short term, they, they sort of derail my brand positioning for my loyal consumers. They don't know who I am anymore. If all of a sudden I'm selling down and dirty discounts on, you know, on Amazon or some other platform. So there are some considerations there, but, but mission one is keep the business uh, alive. In the longer term, you know, what we often recommend to businesses when we do workshops uh, with, with corporations, we'll often right off the top ask the question in an innovation workshop, if there was some reason you couldn't sell what you sell, for whatever reason, either the profitability level of it just wasn't there anymore, or you were prevented somehow from selling it, what would you do? What, what, what else of value could you potentially deliver? And it's an interesting exercise because, and we've actually done it in, in the betting industry, it's an interesting exercise because all of a sudden you, you get to sort of the bigger idea around what you sell. And uh, to my mind, a bedding retailer doesn't just sell mattresses. You know, there's a difference between selling, between selling the idea of sleep and health and wellness, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, sort of taking care of yourself and being at peak performance. That's, that's a different idea than just flogging mattresses and selling mattresses out the door. Once you start to explore those bigger areas, oh, okay, we're really in the sleep and health and wellness industry. What other avenues does that open up? What, you know, if, if really what you're trying to sell consumers is, is wellness and health, that's a much, much bigger concept and could avail all kinds of different services, different alliances that you could form, different products even that, that you could sell in lieu of selling mattresses. So part of this, this time, it's a bit of a gift that, the universe is handing us in a way because we get this time to completely rethink everything, including the reason for our business's existence. So you made a good point there. Kinsley and I have talked a lot about the sleep ecosystem. So if you are in the business of improving sleep, because we, we beat the drum all the time, right? We're, whenever we go and we talk to retailers in person, we ask them what business they're in. They say, we sell mattresses. If we say, you're wrong, you don't sell mattresses. You sell the ability to improve quality of life because that's what sleep can deliver, right? So many great things with that. And then in the sleep ecosystem, so if that's the business you're in is sleep, then what are the other levers that impact sleep? It's light, it's sound, it's stress, it's, it's tea, it's music, it's um, so many other things. So 
Um, maybe not necessarily in lieu of, but in addition to. So I like what you said. And so kind of throw some other things into that so you're not just dependent on that one thing. So Exactly. And you distinguish yourself from the Amazons of the world. I mean, there's only two ways you can go in terms of a product or service offering. You go wide or you go deep. And Amazon is, is a, a business that, that simply can't and really it's not in their interest to go too deep into anything. You know, they're not going to become the sleep experts. They're going to be the company where if you need an, a mattress and you need to buy one in the next five minutes, well, there they are, you know? Um, so these broader ideas, you know, if you, if you sell groceries, you don't really sell groceries, you sell health and wellness and nutrition and fitness. You know, uh, if, if, if you're in the insurance, insurance business, you're not just selling policies, you're selling peace of mind, right? It gets back to some of these bigger ideas. And, and that really gives an independent a lot of new latitude, but it also really distinguishes them as a, a, a category expert, not just a, a product source. You know, I recently had a call with a lot of international partners of ours. And they were talking about this idea of kits and about people wanting to go into public, limit their exposure, get everything all at once. E-commerce came up as a topic of conversation. We're here with Sarah from Pure Care. Sarah, I know that your mind is swirling around so many of these topics and drop shipping is something that your retail partners have said, hey, Pure Care, we need help with this. And you've responded. Absolutely. We've recently updated our facilities in Arizona so that we can manage drop ship up to 4,000 drop shipments a day, actually. And it is such a great way for retailers to expand what they're offering their customers, especially today when you don't wanna take on that heavy inventory and cost burden. Add it to your website, let us ship it direct from our facilities. You've got the great Pure Care brand story that is all about wellness, sleeping cleaner. We've owned that story for over 20 years in the industry. It's growing and it's gonna be more relevant than ever as we move out of this. So uh, we're really set up. We've got anything that a retailer would need from content to copy to images to video. And we have a full staff ready to help. I really believe this is one of the ways that retailers can make a very, very minimal investment, if any, and get dropship programs to their customers today. So everyone listening to this, there's a lot of you out there that weren't set up for e-commerce. Sarah Bergman just told you about Pure Care. It's hitting the easy button so they can give you content to post your website. It's all done for you, super easy. The drop ship it right to your customer and allow yourself to capitalize on uh, the digital commerce side. So Sarah, great job. Uh, congratulations to you guys for setting that up and to everyone at Pure Care, thanks. Thanks guys. Here on the Dos Marcos podcast, talking to the retail prophet himself, Doug Stevens. And Doug, we started getting into this a little bit, but talk about this idea of service. I think it's a really interesting kind of line to go down because I even look back in history and you think about IBM, you know, they sold hardware and then the service side of their business became much more valuable than hardware, which gets commoditized. Are you seeing people move retail operations more into a service mindset and those revenue streams are gonna elevate them above some of the e-commerce comp, uh, competition? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, um, 
you, you can't even get someone from Amazon on the phone. You know, it, it, it's, you have to comb through the website to try and find a phone number. So Amazon's not in the business of service. They're in the business of self-service and they do a great job of it. And, and that's the case with a lot of online retailers. You know, they, they just don't, you know, eBay has no interest in talking to consumers about something. So services is, is definitely a differentiating component. But the, the thing I think is critical for retailers to understand though, is that, and I know intuitively they kind of understand this, but I don't think that in practicality it plays out on the ground. That we live in a world now where being relatively sure about something is not good enough. You know, we live in a world where each day all of us are Googling things, you know, like, where, where, was, where was Ella Fitzgerald born? I don't know. Let's look it up. You know, I mean, the facts are at our fingertips. And so when we go into especially a small independent boutique type retail store, we're not just looking for a bit of product knowledge or a little more product knowledge looking for a level of personal expertise and experience that someone can say not only do I know about this this mattress or you know this 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 box spring I've used it and I can tell you firsthand what that feels like or what that experience is like um, we we don't just expect knowledge we expect expertise when we're going to an independent store we also expect to be fond over you know, we really do. I mean, we know in most cases we're going to be paying a bit of a premium. It's probably not the best deal in town. So what is the value equation? What, why am I paying the extra amount? If it's for incredible knowledge, incredible expertise, and being treated like a king or a queen while I'm in that store, then that makes up the difference. Unfortunately, most independent retailers say they deliver a distinctive level of service, but the truth is they don't. They're talking to themselves. So do you, do you think this statement is fair and accurate? We've almost said, because, boy, I remember a time when there were a lot of people on the speaking circuit talking about that, you know, that diamond level customer service. That was what it's all about, how you're answering the phone. What are you doing in this? Have we almost kind of sacrificed that whole way of thinking for convenience? So service has been sacrificed online specifically in favor of like, yes, we're not getting like, I remember times when I'd buy something online, I mean, crazy. I can't get someone on the phone, but then kind of over time, haven't we kind of just been dumbed down to where we're like, yeah, it's just kind of what it is now. Is that a, a fair representation? Yeah, of that? It, it, it is fair. Um, I, I would argue that what, what has happened to the market is that we have um, sort of redefined value as consumers. Some of this is a, is a result of technology. Some of it is just a result of the nature of our lives, you know, the busy lives that we lead. But there are really basically only two experiences now in, in any market, in any category that are viable. And the one experience is you make it so simple for me to buy your product that you become the cognitive default. When I think of buying this product, I don't even, I don't see any other logos. I don't think about any other retailers. You're the one that pops to mind and that's where I go to buy it. And it's convenient, it's easy, it's frictionless and I don't have to worry too much about paying, overpaying, right? So there's 
that. And I call that sort of the high utility experience. It's sort of like having your Swiss Army knife in your pocket. It's the go-to, right? It's got everything I need. And if it doesn't, then I'll, I'll look for something else. On the other end of the spectrum, though, there's also an experience called the high fidelity experience. And that's where we as consumers knowingly say, I don't want either just a commodity product or I really feel like I need a level of expertise or I just want I want to really treat myself to a great shopping experience. That's where they're shopping the other end of the spectrum. In some cases, that might be a luxury retailer. In other cases, it might just be a small local retailer that offers great products and service. But those are the two extremes, either the high fidelity proposition where the, the, the fact that you're paying more just makes perfect sense, totally justified. You know, you're happily paying more. And then the other end of the spectrum is when you're sitting in an airport and you realize, oh, I need a new charger for my computer. And five minutes later, you've ordered it on Amazon and it's on the way to the house. All the stuff that's getting killed, though, is the stuff in the middle. It's, it's, it's those situations where the consumer says, well, you know, you're not the most convenient. You don't have the best selection. Your prices are fairly high and you don't deliver awesome service. So why would I even bother? And that's the stuff that's getting wiped out. Just so that's such a light bulb for me because isn't it that you're in the store and you're like, why the hell did I waste my time coming here shopping for that? I could have bought it online. Exactly, and, yeah. and that's, so that's the middle, I, right? Doug? I mean, that's that's yeah, that's purgatory. That's where you literally become the place where people come to search your competitor's website in your store. That's that's hell on earth in retail. That's what it is. That's so good. So, because yeah. you just Doug, you just haven't proven your value, you know. Are you seeing anybody that has maybe been stuck in the middle and then moved out? Can you think of any any examples where there's a retailer out there? They're trying to evolve. They're trying to make themselves better, and they've made that leap. And maybe it is to that high fidelity experience and they've re-engineered their culture so that they're relevant in today's environment. Do you have any examples of that? So, you know, I'll give you an example of a, of a brand that for, for the sake of, of a brand that everyone in your audience will, will recognize, I'll, I'll use this one, but you know, part of, part of moving forward is not necessarily always about the things you choose to do, it's oftentimes about the, the, the things you choose not to do anymore. Sometimes that's a good strategy. I'll give you an example. In 2017, Nike, who, you know, huge, obviously massive, one of the largest brands on earth, uh, found itself in a situation where it was being distributed through 30,000 different retail partners worldwide across 110,000 different distribution points. And in 2017, Mark Parker wrote a letter to the market, essentially saying that the brand had made a decision to cease funding for all of those relationships with its retailers worldwide, with the exception of 40 retailers. 40 retailers out of 30,000, it said, we we believe that these retailers are capable of delivering what we consider to be the Nike brand experience. The rest of you, hey, thanks for coming out. It's been a slice. 
you can continue to sell our products, but we're not going to fund your advertising programs. We're not going to build you merchandisers. That relationship is over. Oh, and by the way, we're going to put that money into our direct-to-consumer business. We're going to improve our online capabilities. We're going to explore and experiment with completely radical store concepts that are much more, more geared to this kind of store-as-media sort of concept. And that's precisely what they did, much to the shock and horror of these 30,000 merchants. A very, very difficult decision, but Mark Parker in, engaged in that. Now, what happened when COVID-19 came into place? Uh, Nike rises above and, and turns out to be one of the very few brands that was able to sustain itself online through its online and direct-to-consumer sales through the initial part of the pandemic. Uh, it, it Because it had, it had sort of killed its, its reliance on physical stores, it was able to go to the market and confidently say, all of our stores will be closed, all of our people will be home and safe, we don't want to put customers at risk, so they're, you know, great crisis communication plan. But the reason for all of that was not because they reacted well in the middle of the crisis, it was because they reacted three years before the crisis. And that's really the message, I think, to retailers. You cannot respond in the middle of a hurricane. Everything's very difficult. There's stuff flying in the air. There's danger at, at every turn. Uh, you're freaked out. Your, your emotions are engaged. It's a very difficult time to try and strategize your way out of a crisis. The better time is before you get into the crisis. It's really the lesson here, I think. I'm curious, what, what did those 40 retailers that Nike stayed attached to have in common? Was it they can deliver the brand experience and the brand message that Nike wants? Um, was there, were there other commonalities among those retailers? Yeah. So it was principally that the, the retailer has the space. They have the, the staffing levels and, and the operational capability and the willingness to actually institute something that Nike felt was an acceptable Nike presence or experience in their store um, as a as a third party seller. Um, what it what it really I think was trying to get away from, uh, and and uh, you know and, and hence the reason for severing ties with so many other retailers was the commoditization of its brand. Was that you know its brand was being essentially blown out. Um, just in an effort to to attract uh, foot traffic and it wasn't standing for that any longer you know you mentioned this idea uh, of a store as media and, and we talked about this a little bit before we actually started recording the podcast and then you just mentioned it in relation to nike talk about that concept and what it means for retail what it means for product brands and how that all starts to shake out and then we can kind of dig in a little more because even the first time I heard it, I, it was on one of your videos. I watched it on YouTube and I thought a store, store as media, or if I own a product brand, the store becomes a media buy for me. Help us understand right. that. Sure. So, you know, a lot of understanding the, the future is about sort of reflecting on the past. So, so let's go back, um, you know, let, let, let's go back a hundred or so years. Um, the fact of the matter is, for at least the last hundred years, the way you, the way we looked at retail was that you used media uh, of of some sort 
to try and drive traffic to your store. So if we go back a thousand years, the, the form of media was the public square. It was the city center. You know, you'd go there, people would talk about politics, you'd talk about philosophy or, you know, what the fashionable togas were in style and where to buy them and that sort of thing. But it was the market square and the, the bazaar was really the center of society and it was the, the, the most prevalent media form. Um, then, then we evolve to the printing press and the printed word becomes the pr prevailing form of media. And then that eventually uh, innovates into radio and radio into television and then finally to the digital universe we find ourselves in today. Uh, today, digital is the campfire that we gather around to share information, to, to perform commerce, to talk about politics and that sort of thing. So that's where we are. But the problem is, is that the digital, the digital landscape is extremely crowded now. You've had, you know, virtually every company on earth now move their dollars out of conventional media into digital media. The cost of that digital media is exponentially higher than it was only a few years ago. I mean, between 2017 and 2018, Facebook's cost for an ad, one single ad, doubled. You know, and there are brands like, uh, there's an apparel brand called Outdoor Voices that recently said, we can't even advertise online anymore because the cost of getting that last incremental customer online actually costs us more than the customer is worth to the brand. So, where does that put us? Well, it, it puts us in a place now where the funnel is about to invert, where we have been buying media to drive consumers to physical retail. What we now need to consider is that physical retail could be the customer acquisition method. We could draw consumers into the brand through physical retail, but ultimately our aim is to serve them across digital channels is to use media as the store, making it possible for them to buy from us through any channel, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or an image uh, that they get in a flyer. You know, every single piece of communication is the store and the store is a form of media. So in other uh, media is now the cost of sales. And the store and rent and wages are the cost of customer acquisition. And this is a formula now that brands like Nike, I've spoken to people at Nike, and they said that was exactly the way we were looking at it when we put together our Nike House of Innovation in New York City or our Nike by Melrose store out in LA. It's that the store is the first place in many cases that the customer will come in to experience the brand and if you can really blow their mind in the physical world, then you just bring them into your digital ecosystem and there they buy for eternity as long as you keep them close. So that's sort of this idea that physical retail is becoming a media channel and we can no longer just simply measure performance in physical stores by sales per square foot or sales per hour or comp store growth. And I just want to put a couple stats around that because you know, I, I don't want people to think that this is just kind of nonsense that I'm, I'm dreaming up. What we know is this. We know from, from copious amounts of research, we know that in a market that does not have a particular brand of store, when you open that store in that market, when you open that brand and give it presence in that market through a physical store, 
we see an online sales increase of anywhere between 27 and 35 percent just because that store is now in that market it's present so we know that there is a media value we know that there's a media effect of a physical store what we need to start doing is attributing the media value of the store back to the store's productivity right and some brands are actually doing this now they're they're trying to understand okay well if we attract you know a million new customers a year through one of our big stores what is the value of that from a media standpoint? What would we have had to go out and spend on the open market in terms of digital media to capture that many customers? Um, and, and we should be sort of considering that to be part of the value or the productivity of the physical store. So I know it can sometimes sound a bit McClue-esque. It's sort of like, you know, the media is the message kind of stuff. But if you just think about physical stores being a cost of customer acquisition, as opposed to simply a means of distribution, it sort of begins to make sense. Well, and, and so, so does even, that change the way that stores are going to be set up? So do stores start getting set up more like TV channels? Like if my TV channel doesn't attract eyeballs, then nobody's going to want to advertise on it. So if my store isn't attracting people, then me as a product brand, I'm not going to want to advertise in that store. Is that how this this relationship works? I believe, I believe that that is where it's going. And so to, to your point, just to sort of take that model a step farther, imagine you're a shopping center owner uh, or a shopping center management company. Um, you are charging rent and typically rent in the commercial real estate sector works on a, on a, um, uh, percent rent basis. So, you know, you have a minimum rent and then you have another figure that's based on on sales out of that location. Um, and, and so this, this you know, percent rent formula has been the prevailing formula for rentals uh, in most shopping centers. But now you find yourself in a situation where for the past 10 years at least, the growth of online sales has been 15% per annum, just like clockwork every year, 15%, 15%, while growth in the physical retail has been anemic. You know, it's been maybe one or 2% growth from the physical side. So the question then becomes, how do you continue to thrive on percent rent when the sales per square foot in a given location are going down? More and more of the sales are being cleaved off to online. And in the aftermath of this crisis, we can expect that that percentage is going to balloon. You know, we could see 20% of retail go online in the aftermath of COVID-19. So if I can't charge percent rent anymore, then, then what am I, what, what, what's the basis for our rental agreement? I believe it will move over to more of a TV network kind of model. So if we imagine that a TV network's responsibility is to drive traffic to its shows, the shows that it offers, and it does that through a variety of different means. I believe the same model is going to apply to shopping centers at some point in the near future because these stores are going to stop measuring their performance based solely on sales. It's going to be more around how many new customers are coming in, how prevalent is our brand in this part of the marketplace, uh, you know, how, how do our brands serve to sort of be that portal for entry into, into our ecosystem. And they're going to be looking to shopping centers to, they're going to be saying, Hey, put, put people on my doorstep. Like I'm here, I'm ready. I've got a great show. You need to drive people to my doorstep and I will reward you on that basis. If you're able to put the right eyeballs or the right feet 
in front of my door, I'll bring them across the threshold and you'll be rewarded in the end. But this, this idea of it all being based around sales per square foot and comp store growth, it's just, again, it's another product of the industrial era that's going to go away. So, Doug, were you saying that the burden then becomes um, that of the landlord? Or are you still saying, okay, so you were saying that. So how do you bring people into the mall or into the strip center? And then yeah. if you do that, Mr. Landlord, then we will reconcile that in payment to you as it relates to our sales. Direct sales. Yeah. Yeah, we will, you know, if you think about it, we'll base our rental, we'll base our rental rate on ratings, let's say, you know, the, the same way that you would, uh, you know, you'd, you'd look at the Nielsen ratings to find out how many people are watching a particular show on a given night. I, I think that uh, retailers are going to start to look at that as well, because if it's no longer about, you know, me just sort of trying to trying to push out as much stuff out of the store as I possibly can. But it really is about acquiring new consumers, treating those new consumers to a, a unique experience and bringing them into the brand. And they're going to want to know, like, what, what is the center doing to drive traffic? Because let's not forget, too, I mean, the, the shopping center industry and, and frankly, all com most commercial landlords still are, are also in the industrial era where it was about a 10-year lease a credit worthy tenant. We turn on the lights in the morning. Uh, you know, we make sure the place is air conditioned and clean and we have a food court. But beyond that, you guys are on your own. That is just not going to cut it anymore. Retail retailers are going to look for more. They're going to look for more of an active participation in, in marketing from the centers that they're in. So even more so than ever. So I, you know, you think mall of America, right? Those guys understand the draw. Um, and the experience, right? But a retailer, the three of us were going to open a shop tomorrow. One of the first things we have to be thinking about is what are we going to do to create a unique experience, either through entertaining people or directly connected to the products that we sell? So, in the Nike example, the treadmill and the television to show you your instep going in or out and fitting you that way directly for the shoe that you want to buy. So some expertise that transcends what you can do online. So those types of things, if we can't do that, then the three of us better start thinking about maybe a different product or a different um, type of store to open because it's, you, you, if, you, if you can't say, what are you, like, why not just buy that online? If you can't answer that question, then you're going to really have a big problem, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and again, I think it, 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 how do you build that production? So if we just think of, think of the store, not, uh, you know, not as a, a small warehouse where you distribute products from, but think about the store as a stage. Think about the products as being part of a production. So the question is, what's, what's the story that you're producing? What, what, what is this story about? Is it about mattresses at a great price? Okay, well, that's, that's a story, I suppose. It's not a very interesting or compelling story, but it, if it is a story about sleep and wellness and, and uh, mental health and, and physical health and endurance and all that good stuff and stress release, that becomes a story that can play out very nicely on that stage, you know, with different product categories, maybe expert presentations that are given either in-store or online. You could have an extremely robust YouTube channel where you're you're talking to experts in psychology or health experts or sleep experts. You'd be talking about meditation, yoga. You could be selling, uh, you know, vaporizers to scent your rooms. I mean, 
the sky's the limit once you start thinking in terms of what's the show? Why am I really trying to, what am I trying to bring people in to, to do or to know or to engage with? And the question we have to ask in the short term is, how can I take those elements of that compelling show and put them online so that people, you know, why, why am I not live streaming from my store? You know, I, I, I can do that while I'm closed. I can live stream, I can talk about my products, but what's the show? And unfortunately, well, a lot of retailers, you ask that question and they close their eyes to imagine it and all they see is darkness. You know, they, they just don't, they don't have that sense of where to go with this, but it, it just takes the courage to take the first step and say, we're not in the mattress business anymore. We're in the sleep business, folks. So let's go for it. We've talked to people that mention how Apple stores turned into town centers. Apple stores now hosting how-to sessions for shooting better video on your iPhone. Do you see any mid-sized retailers or smaller retailers who have closed their eyes? Maybe for a moment they saw darkness, but they were able to push through to the other side, do the hard work, and emerge with a stage play that was meaningful and engaging to consumers? The, the simple answer is, is yes, absolutely. In fact, you know, at the, at the height of, uh, of last year, uh, you know, I was doing um, dozens and dozens of, of trips around the world, visiting different places, different cities. And one of the first things I always do in every city is, I, I go out and I just, I, without asking anyone, without necessarily looking at tourist guides or anything like that, I just put on my running shoes and I hit the streets and I look for, you know, places where there are lineups out the door, where customers are, are waiting to get in or where it looks like there's something really compelling going on. And to be honest with you, most of the time, the retailers that I find that are really killing it are independent retailers. They're, they're certainly, I'm not, the last time I was surprised by a major chain, you know, by a major chain doing something, I mean, maybe Ikea, Ikea did a really cool concept in New York, a small store concept, but beyond that, most of the, you know, really intriguing, interesting concepts I've seen have been from independent, small independent retailers, sometimes generational uh, independent retailers. Uh, but but it's always just a consequence of their love of their product, their passion around it, um, you know, just just sort of that that uh, pride of ownership in their business, and they they just really yeah they put on a show. Uh, not not every retailer, of course, is like that, you know. But I, I truly believe some of the most magical retail experiences I've ever had have been in independent shops. So isn't it um, that whole future look is definitely going to favor the independent, the guy who can um, move quickly, who is more agile, because creating experiences like that um, require people to support them, personalities, customer service, like big boxes or big chains are going to have a really difficult time scaling those types of experiences, don't you think? I totally do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's really, you know, if there's a, if, if there's a, a player in this market that, that is likely to get squeezed, it's, it's the big box retailer of mattresses. And, and I would say that across virtually every category, you know, um, 
In the same way, you know, I mean, big box retail was sort of the analog version of the internet before the internet in a way, you know, when I remember the first time I ever walked into a Home Depot, I was like dumbstruck. Uh, I was like, how did a hardware store get this big, you know? Um, so that was really sort of the, the, the starting point. If you had a project to do or you needed something, you went to one of these massive big box retailers because they had these enormous selections, great prices. The problem is in the, in the cold, hard light of 2020, they don't look innovative at all. You know, they, they look diminutive. They're difficult to shop. They're usually just uh, soul-destroying experiences uh, where you don't get service. You, you, you get apathy, in some cases belligerence. And so uh, where do you go? Well, that, that's where you, you defect to either online, which is simple, or you go upmarket to the independent. The job of every independent is to prevent that first trip to become so notorious, not just known or well-known in your market, notorious. Like, it, it's just like every, every little town has that notoriously good restaurant that everyone said, no, 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 don't go there, go here. This is the place you need to go. That's where you need to get to with your brand. And, and, and a lot of that has to do with own the category, own it. Like, yeah, you can go buy a mattress anywhere, but you can't, go, you can't buy sleep or wellness or health the way we sell it. If you can become notorious for that, you don't even have to advertise. Forget about it. Circulars, coupons, forget it. That world is gone. As soon as you become notorious, you call the shots. You know, one of the things I've thought a lot about lately, Doug, you've, you touched on, and it ties to this idea of notorious, and it's the rising cost of digital advertising. You know, we saw over the years for the longest time, you know, I worked at a marketing agency and Facebook was free is what people would say. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, you can get in front of your audience if you create good content and you're consistent with it. And then it really moved to more of a paid model. So if you're going to get any type of reach with your posts, then you're going to have to pay to, to have that happen. And so I had a friend drive down the street the other day. And of course, I live in Walmart country. And so he's a vendor for Walmart and he worked for a company that put together it was a cookware package. And as part of this Black Friday deal, they put a Google Home with the package. They sold it on Black Friday. I said, how'd it do? And they sold them, but they had to discount them. And they're kind of watching it from this bullpen in real time. And he said, ultimately, the only people that made real money off of this promotion was Google Home because they made us pre-buy all the Google Homes that went in the package. And then right. we kind of got into this conversation about the rising cost of digital ad and who's, who's really making money off this, how hard it is for independents to navigate that. It's its own skill set. It's a moving target. It's very tough to keep up with. And then I think to myself, if you are notorious in a way that creates word of mouth, like something so notorious and remarkable that people can't wait to talk about it around the dinner table or at the water cooler, it seems to be one of the only ways that I've been able to dream up to insulate yourself against those costs that are probably going to continue rising. It's the only way it really is. And you know, I mean, I think you, I think you've just hit on probably the, the thing that um, is most difficult, frankly, for uh, a business person to sort of reckon with is that there is no, platform. There's no uh, network 
there's no ad buy it's that that is going to get you where you need to get to there's no shifting of dollars from one channel to the other that's going to really solidify your position in your market you have to do something remarkable and it's not just a it's not that's not something that just applies to mattress retailers it applies to everyone me you guys uh, musicians actors like you know there's just so much noise out there and today everybody has their own megaphone whether it's on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and so we have this cacophony of noise in the marketplace and the only way to break through it is to get other people talking about you and that is really more and more why I say if if we reverse the funnel and we stop thinking so much about where where do I put my media dollars you know where do I allocate my media dollars to drive traffic if we reverse the funnel and say no I'm gonna put all my time my attention my blood sweat and tears and my investments right at the point of contact with my customer I'm gonna I'm gonna spend disproportionately in blowing their mind like not just service with a smile but I'm going to blow their mind to the point where when they walk out, they will, they'll intuitively want to tell two or three other people. If that becomes the goal, and it sounds, it sounds easy, it's not, uh, but, it, but if that becomes the goal, I think all of a sudden now you don't have to advertise anymore. That problem goes away. Uh, and you, you sort of become part of that rarefied part of the market that is just hands down. That's, that's the default when people think so, of your category. Um, we had um, a guy named Jesse Cole on our show, Doug, who, um, I don't know if you've heard of him, but Savannah Bananas baseball team, and he's just this crazy creative guy. And he looked at his business, instead of being a baseball team, he looked at it as an entertainment platform and he sells out every seat. And remarkable thing he's created. But anyway, so um, it sounds to me like the creative thinker is going to be one of the most valued employees in any company in the next five years what do you think about that comment yeah i think creativity as a commodity is definitely the it will be the most precious corporate asset uh and 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 frankly i i you know i think it already is and and i mean Part of the problem with that is that we all believe we are creative. We're told from a young age, you know, everybody's creative. Nobody has a, nobody has a corner on the creativity market. We all have good ideas. But the truth of the matter is um, we, we don't all have the same creative capacity. You know, it's sort of like saying we're all good at mathematics. Well, mm, some are better than others, right? Um, the creativity is no different. The problem with creativity is that we live in a society that systemically drums the creativity out of us. You know, we going back to sort of this industrial world we live in. I mean, how many times have you talked to people who said, you know, yeah, I wasn't really, I wasn't really creativity was frowned upon in school. You know, we had to sort of teach to the test and learn, you know, learn things by rote, memorize. But if you question things, if you're into, you know, discussion, a lot of teachers are afraid of that. Fact of the matter is, the creativity is systematically drummed out of us until we're in the workforce. And then all of a sudden our employers say, okay, go off and come up with some creative ideas for me. 
meanwhile, we've sort of lost that muscle. We've lost the muscle memory of how do I create, or if I do, will people think it's a stupid idea? Will I get fired for it? Will it be a failure? We get haunted by this. We need to, we need to not only test people for creativity when we hire them, and there are tests that you can find online that'll allow you to do that, but we need to nurture people's creativity, give them permission to come up with crazy ideas, reward them for coming up with crazy ideas, even if they don't work out, really nurture that, that community or, or that culture of innovation. And within that, the other key piece for the future will be leaders with humility. Leaders who are humble enough to understand or, or to, to, to be honest about the fact that they don't have all the answers. They don't have all the best ideas. Uh, that, 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 that they don't know where COVID-19 is going to lead, but, but what they commit to is, is being flexible, being, being dynamic, being willing to take new information on a given day and act on it, or being willing to hear a, a crazy idea from one of their teammates and say, let's give that a shot. You know, who knows? It could work out to be a great idea. So leadership with humility and loads and loads of creativity those two things are going to be keys to the kingdom in the future. Those are really good takeaways. I almost feel like that could be the exact end of the podcast, but you know, Doug, it's, it's, it's really cool because We've got you booked for the next six hours, right, Doug? <laughs> <laughs> Doug's not laughing. Are you frozen? Doug? <laughs> he is frozen actually. We're just teasing. Anyway, Kinsley, I interrupted you. Continue, please. No, I love hearing that because it maps back to so many things that we've talked about on the podcast. Uh, being creative, um, make, you know, developing a culture of creativity, um, leadership that is focused on developing the team. You know, it's, it's, a lot of people are watching the, the Last Dance documentary, and there's a great moment that I, I don't really haven't seen a lot of people talk about, but it's whenever... Michael Jordan realizes that he has to go from being the best player to being a championship team. And to do that, he had to develop those around him. So he was scoring all the points and getting the assists and the rebounds. He was the best player on the court. And then he realized if we're going to win championships, I need everybody else on this team to contribute in their own unique way. And we're going to have to do this as a tribe and do it together. And I think that's that leadership principle you talk about. And he allowed people to express their own creativity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that really is, that, that's what a great leader does, is they don't necessarily make every decision. They don't come up with every idea because they, real, they realize that they have two, two roles, really two jobs, and that is to select the best people and create a fertile and safe environment for those people to innovate. And, and to and to come up with remarkable ideas and really to do what they they do best, just to give you a sense of you know we talk about the the this, this sort of precious commodity of creativity just to give you a sense of um, uh, some of the the stats around you know how many people truly are creative. If 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 you had a room full of a hundred three to five year olds, statistically, objectively, through testing, you would find that about ninety eight percent of them are deemed to be creative, meaning they can think laterally. So if you were to give them a paperclip and say, how many things could you make out of this paperclip? They'll go all day, right? I mean, it'd, be, it'd be a million things. By the time that child is six to 10 years old, 
that number sinks down to about 60%. By the time they're in their teens, that number sinks down again to about 20 or 30%. And by the time you get to 26 and over, it's 2% of the population is capable of what would deem to, deem to be uh, super creative thinking, lateral, lateral, ability to think laterally or tangentially. That's not many people, you know? Uh, so if you're an organization, if you're a small retailer and you've got 10 people, that means that uh, about 0.02% of your 10 people is, is, uh, are, are, are creative at all. Um, and, and the rest will struggle when you give them a creative exercise to go off and do. It's important to realize that. And it sort of emphasizes the need to go out and really try and hire creative people, people that can do their jobs creatively. That it's so sad because I think a lot of the creativity sad. gets squashed out of us, right, Kinsey? Is that where you're going? Yeah, it, I, mean, I just like can't do that. Yeah, for a moment, like reflecting on how sad that is. I'm, and I'd heard it put differently. You know, you ask a room full of kindergartners how many people are creative, all the hands go up. You ask that same class when they're seniors, it's like a couple of people raise their hands. So there's yeah. real there are real stats around that. So as business owners, when you, when you think to yourself, I have a small team, I have 10 people on my team and you say it's 0.02. Well, I'm going to have to churn through a lot of people hiring and firing just to find that one creative person. How do they, how do they navigate an environment where they need to be creative? Is it hiring agencies or hiring people to come in kind of as a one-off? Well, the, the funny part is most of the organizations that I deal with, most of our clients, and, and, and I mean, we have, we have clients that, you know, are, are as large as, as L'Oreal. Um, you know, we've, we've done work with Walmart. The surprising thing is that most organizations don't really test for creativity on the way in. They test for IQ. They want to know how smart you are. They test for EQ. They want to know if you're sensitive to the feelings of other people or you can manage your own emotions but they don't test for, for creativity. And yet, you know, when you think about it, so much of business, certainly I think an, an equal portion of business is not just how smart you are, and it's not just how, how nicely you play with others, it's your ability to come up with um, uh, new novel and useful ideas, you know? And, uh, and so it is surprising, most organizations just, just don't, test. The easiest way if you're an in you're interviewing to describe to you specific situations from their past where they have been in a position where they've had to come up with a new novel or unconventional way of doing something in order to solve a problem or to take advantage of an opportunity. Ask them for a specific example or examples from their past and you'll know within a few minutes, uh, whether or not a candidate has legitimate experience in being creative or innovative. <laughs> I usually answer that, that with. Part, so part of, it is, part of it is having the creative people. The other part of it is having the leader create an environment where you support creativity and you reward creativity and you create the culture for that. Kinsey. Yeah, hundred percent. It, it, it all comes out. I mean, look, it's one thing to say, Hey, you know, we need, we need people to be creative and come up with innovative ideas. But if you're the kind of leader that, that shuts people down or punishes people for ideas that go sideways, then you're, you're, you know, you're, you're creating an atmosphere of fear uh, around it. And, and, you know, to the point earlier, that's why so many of us lose 
our sense of creativity because we did raise our hand that day in English class and we we had an idea or we had a thought and the teacher you know made, made us feel foolish the class laughed at us and the little voice inside our head said creativity is risky you know don't do it um, and, and we carry that with us into our adult lives so yeah, it really is a matter of the leader being humble enough to know that they don't have all the good ideas and that, you know, the thing they think is crazy could in actual fact be the thing that saves their business. You know, Jesse Cole, who Mark mentioned earlier, it was the first podcast at the beginning of this year. And this guy wears a yellow tuxedo everywhere he goes. He said, baseball is boring and slow. Let's make it fun and entertaining. 18 happenings of just wildness. They have grandma beauty pageants. They hold up the babies that are at the, at the field and play the, the Lion King music. They have players go on dates during the game. I mean, they're, they're incredible. And one of the exercises he gave us that I think is really good and I've talked about before is he says, we looked at baseball and we decided, let's do the exact opposite. We're going to have a breakdancing first base coach. We're going to have a penguin in the parking lot showing people where to go just for no reason. But what are we going to do that's the exact opposite? And he said, most of the time these days, that's the right answer. Yeah. Yeah. Cut across the current. Be different. Stand out. Yeah. Be relevant. Be relevant. I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're doing something and it's not appealing to some sort of relevant need on the part of an, of an end customer of some kind, you know, that, that, that becomes self-indulgent at that point. But, um, but you know, being, being a little bit better than the competitor down the street who they themselves are completely unremarkable, that's just the road to nowhere, you know? And, and unfortunately, you know, what we find in industries is that industries don't make competitors more differentiated. Industries have a tendency to make competitors more the same. Why? Well, because we all read the same industry trade publications. We all go to the same conferences. We all hire the same consulting companies. We all deal with the same vendors and suppliers, and we deal through the same supply chains. So in, in, over time, we actually become more the same. We all become more, more mediocre. And what that does is it puts the entire industry then at risk. The entire category becomes uh, you know, potentially uh, disrupted because you have all these competitors on the outside looking at this mediocre market saying, you know, this is, this is a huge opportunity for someone to reinvent this experience. And we see it happen over and over and over again. So I guess if I have an optimistic note here, I, I would just sum it up by saying, look, yes, the next year is going to be, I think it's going to be one of the most difficult years for business on record. I don't think there's any way to get around it. What we have, though, is we have an, uh, an opportunity. The un look at it this way. The universe is handing your business an opportunity to completely rethink who you are, what you offer, who you offer it to, and how you go to market, and how you can be decidedly different, better, more resilient, and more capable as a business after the fact. So build today for the future that is coming uh, while you, of course, do what you need to do to keep your business afloat. Uh, but, but I think that we could literally be stepping into a renaissance in retail uh, that, that 
really could be a very, very promising new era of growth. And keep in mind too, in the 1918 pandemic, the economy didn't get back to pre-pandemic levels until 25. However, it was also the roaring 20s. There was a lot of growth between you know, 1924 and 1929. So there will be growth on the other side of this. It will be, I think, pretty astonishing, the level of growth that we will get to eventually, but we're going to have to go through some hard times to do it. Well, I hope that your wrists, as you listen, aren't worn out. I hope there's a little bit of ink left in your pen. I don't think I oversold it. Doug, amazing insights, just gem after gem that I'm going to go back and re-listen to this and capture as much as I can because you've given us so much to think about. And I love ending it on an optimistic note because I think, like you said earlier, this is a gift. We've been given time. We've been given uh, the ability to wipe the slate clean. And uh, thankfully, we've been given you today to to guide us through this. Um, so thank you very, very much for your time. And if you want to get in touch with Doug or find out more about his work, go to Retail Profit. That's with a P-H, so P-R-O-P-H-E-T, retailprofit.com. And Doug, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. Anytime, guys. Well, not long ago, we were living our lives about as normal as can be. But then things got real and now we're all home, perhaps indefinitely. You see, to stop the spread, we need to isolate ourselves from one another. But the good news is that means a lot more time with your sister and your brother. Now the kids are home from school, which they think is kind of cool, except we're blowing up the internet. We're doing video meetings and virtual classes. Like, can you guys even hear me? This is the new normal are sheltered in place so we can save the population of the whole human race well, this is serious stuff to give ourselves the best chance we've got to isolate but that don't mean we can't dance now there comes a time when you gotta get out of the house to enjoy the day so we go to the park and just make sure to keep other people far away And family time has never been better, at least in quantity Baking cookies in the kitchen, doing yoga in the yard, it's a parenting PhD And I'm my own bartender and that means that my glass is always full And the best part is that in this bar, pants are optional This is the new normal are sheltered in place so we can save the population of the whole human race well this is serious stuff to give ourselves the best chance we've got to isolate but that don't mean we can't Well, now we're cleaning the garage, cause this is number 82 on the honeydew list. Next come the closets, the cupboards, the windows, the painting, you get the gist. Now people used to laugh that I hadn't watched all the shows everybody knows. But now we got the time, so who's laughing now that I've been saving the Sopranos? And if we get lonely and need to see our friends and our family, we just call them up on the video and talk about who has more TP. Let's build a shelter, a shelter, shelter in place. Everybody do the shelter, shelter in place, yeah. Right
Ha 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 ha!